Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and a big thank you to Emma Sandler, who has been pinch hitting these last few weeks. In today's episode, we have two amazing co-founders who many of you probably know and use their products. We have Matthew Mallon and Andrew Getz, the co-founders of Mallon & Getz. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. How are you? Hi, Priya. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Priya. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen you guys. I feel like we were just reminiscing the last time we talked, especially about retail and the business, was 2019, which we all know, obviously, was a very, very long time ago. Um, How have you guys been doing these last 18 months? Pretty well. I mean, things have gone... You know, surprisingly well. I mean, we we've we've seen some um, changes in the business, obviously, but overall, we've come out of this um, on the good side. As they say, what what doesn't kill you does indeed make you stronger. So, tell me before you guys get into like the details of the pandemic and obviously what's going on now. You know, I think a lot of people don't know how you guys met and how you started this brand. Matthew, you want to start? Sure. Um, so, Andrew and I met in a bar almost 30 years ago. And we um, had a personal relationship for about 10 years before we started the business. Um, Andrew had sort of been privy to my experiences in the beauty industry. And as small niche luxury businesses were being sold off to large corporations, he, as the entrepreneur in the family, had said to me, we should really step in and pick up where some of these other businesses like Bliss or Kiehl's or Fresh or Francois Nars had left off. And so we started putting a business plan together, really with the idea to bring our two worlds together, that of beauty and Andrew's world of design. What made you guys think that what you guys were doing at the time, which was obviously a little bit ago, uh, was going to be different in the market? What were you kind of looking to solve? Well, I think we were doing exactly the opposite of the market. The, The market was about more, 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 and then more. And we were about less, less, less is more. Um, so we came at it from a very minimalist, very different direction, not only in our packaging and design, but also in our formulations and the protocols that you would use within the line. Matthew, you mentioned a second ago that you were obviously in the beauty business and obviously was a buyer for many years. I'm wondering when you thought, was this going to be a men's brand? Was this going to be a women's brand? Was this going to be a unisex brand? Because I know a lot of the, in the early days, a lot of it was about natural ingredients, apothecary-like feel but with a modern aesthetic. Yes. So when we go back 18 years ago and we started the brand, to your point about what voids did we fill in the marketplace, nobody was really doing unisex at that time. So specifically, if you think back historically to how apothecaries operated in your grandparents' time, your great-grandparents' time, if you think about your neighborhoods in Paris or London or New York City and where you'd go to the local pharmacy, um, these were places where it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman or what your skin type was you had an ailment, the pharmacist, maybe Malin or Getz would come out and mix something up for you and make it for you. And you would take it home and you would use it in this glass jar with a label on it and it would work. And when you needed more, you'd come back for more. And this was sort of your neighborhood experience. So our concept was not so brand new, but sort of revisiting something that had always been there for us in the past. And really, again, as you said, making that, making that modern. So 
from a from the perspective of it being male versus female and us as a beauty industry over marketing to consumers to get them to buy specific specialty items that perhaps they just don't need or overloading their skin um, creating sensitivities this would have been sort of um, item number two or void number two we filled so really focusing on more sensitive skin sort of as that basic ingredient of how do you create a product that anyone can use by eliminating things that were otherwise creating irritations to the skin um, and then finally you know really focusing on sort of this mom and pop idea of neighborhood and doing something special and unique so all of these things together then encompassing you know this uncomplicated idea for um, a man or woman or something that was genderless um, based out of New York City and focused on skin sensitivities so that you don't have to think about it it just makes it easy you forgot the dog as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so funny that some of the things that you're talking about, you know, from 18 years ago, 2004, I want to say, you know, when you opened your first store in, in Chelsea are things that were so dominant now. You know, people are going back to small format stores. People are going back to sensitive skins. I mean, you know, issues and, and talking about like sensitive skin products or sensitive skin lines. What do you kind of think about that now? You know, obviously you've seen this kind of go up and down cyclically. Uh, well, if um, I guess what I think about it, and I'm sure Andrew would agree and maybe has a, a point as well, is that, you know, we, we really were sort of doing what um, the two of us saw for ourselves and for our friends and our family and our local customer base. So when we opened up the store 18 years ago in our own neighborhood, in Chelsea, in Manhattan, in the building for which we lived, it really was to address a lot of these sort of basic ideas that filled voids in the marketplace, which were relevant at the time, um, at least from our perspective. As we look at trends now today, I, I think there's a lot of validation um, for for what we were doing 18 years ago, and that certainly makes us feel good. Um, it certainly means we're on the right track, and perhaps, um, are, or maybe even a little bit ahead of the game. I, I think a lot of the, how we developed the business and the brand was uh, distinctly not about trends, but doing what we truly, earnestly believed in, and there was an incredible amount of an integrity what we did, even if the market was sort of doing something very very different. Um, so in the market sort of has caught up with us. And of course, that's very flattering on every level. But um, I think that's always our, um, been so important to us is that we just really do what we believe in, uh, regardless of, of the trends and what's happening at the moment. You know, we, we've never been the lemming going off the cliff. Andrew, I remember when I spoke to you all, you know, pre-pandemic, and we were talking so much about retail. And at the time, you guys were trying to open more stores in London. You were going to open this Williamsburg store that we're now going to be talking about today. Um, and that's going to be open imminently. And so I'm wondering, you know, you were very much a proponent of the brick and mortar model and, and very much a proponent of neighborhoods and unique neighborhoods and feel like the way that you're talking about Chelsea. Um, I'm wondering how that may have changed for you or if that's changed now that store behavior has changed so much. If anything, it's been reinforced. And as we come out of the post-COVID world and there are a lot of uh, ashes in the wake, um, as you talked about big format stores and formula retailing, um, if a store doesn't have something special, um, which includes beautiful design, wonderful brands and products um, and um, great service, of course, 
it's going to be challenging in in the post-COVID world. So the, a brand really has to have a lot of integrity and in offering something very, very different in order for it to be appealing. And I think these are the things that we've done really, really well over the last um, 17 years. Every store has a different uh, design. So no two stores are a clone of the others. So it makes going into Malin and Getz really interesting and um, engaging. And I think that's really one of the specialties of what we do. Also, of course, great products and great service. But I think the environment and that that belief and commitment to brick and mortar and making every brick and mortar store something special is, uh, is, is pretty unique. Tell me a little bit what would happen. Cause I can imagine, you know, obviously stores get postponed all the time, but you know, we're talking about 18 months of a pandemic of pandemic living. So did you guys really just kind of want to wait to see how things were going to go with Williamsburg or what really happened there? I, I think we were, re- I think we were really committed to it. Um, we are, uh, very adamant believers in urban life and um, urban living, which also includes urban shopping. And we we knew, um, I, I mean, we really felt in our hearts it was all going to come back. And that in some ways, breaking out of the, the isolation of COVID, if you were doing something great on, on, the, on the Commerce Street, um, there was a real opportunity. So Williamsburg did get delayed, but we never wavered in our belief of opening it. It was just, um, obviously when everything was shut down, everything was shut down. Um, but when it opened up, it's opened up with a fury. How does that compare to your e-commerce site? Because I remember also in 2019, you guys had just replatformed, you had created a new experience on your website to be you know, more engaging, more informative. So I imagine a lot of those sales that you may have seen in stores in 2020, obviously flipped to online. They did. They did indeed. So, I mean, that was what was so interesting and also a lifesaver is that when all the stores closed down across the the world, um, we were very fortunate to have a very, very robust um, e-commerce site. So it's sort of almost like a balloon. When you squeeze the air from one section, it goes to the other. And so our e-commerce sales were sort of off the charts and allowed the company to really prosper. I mean, uh, we actually did super, super well during during COVID. And now that COVID has subsided, we're noticing a lot more return to not only our um, individual retail stores, but also our partners like Nordstrom's and uh, specialty boutiques. So there's a now a nice amalgamation of both e-commerce and brick and mortar, which is uh, for us really the um, the nicest way to be able to um, support the brand. But we've been able to sustain the brick and mortar business, or excuse me, we've been able to sustain the digital business from last year, which was a 60 to 70% increase over the previous year, even as brick and mortar has come back on and is now continuing to grow well over the previous year and the year before that. So would you say that, you know, D to C is now about 50% of your business compared to stores. Cause I remember at the time, again, I'm referencing the, our last chat because it's been so long, but I think at the time it was, you know, it was quite a bit less and so maybe it was about 30% and really that stores were the driving force. Correct. Yes. So our, our own store network and our wholesale business probably accounted for 70% of the business and digital about 30. And you're right now it's about 50, 50. 
Tell me a little bit about, you know, the specialty experience, because not only are your stores a destination, and I'm so excited that Williamsburg is finally getting off the ground, but, you know, it seems like there was a point in time when we were going to restaurants all the time. And when we were going out, you know, Malin and Getz was in every bathroom, every cool restaurant had your hand washes or had, you know, something of yours or, or every hotel for that matter, you know, whether it be moisturizers or cleansers or shampoos or conditioners. How did you guys kind of develop that strategy? Because it's very different than from the usual like Sephora Ulta play. It, it wasn't really very very strategic. <laughs> we um... it was it was it was organic. But what <laughs> happened was once we understood um, the opportunity, we ran with it. So I don't think um, either one of us were clever enough to say this is a great marketing and business plan. We're going to go hit every restaurant and every hotel and airline. What happened is when we were able to do a few of them, we realized how much it resonated, and then we turned it into a business. But, but we probably we weren't even a year old, and we had done an interview with New York Magazine on our on our brand in our shop in Chelsea. And after that, the editor had approached us and said, "Oh, I just went to Mexico and met these two guys who have a hotel, and I told them that they should be carrying your products and Literally, they called us, or they actually might have even stopped in the store like a week later, and we're like, "So we want to put your products in our rooms in our hotel and we're like, "Okay, well, we don't have a hotel amenity program <laughs> so we so we ended up making something for them yeah and it, it- and not only that, I think the same week David Barton Jim came, uh, I said when we opened, he said, "Oh, I want to use you in our uh, showers." But I mean, I guess again, what I was saying is that all this was very organic, and then we somehow got our act together to execute it and do it, and then we realized, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. It's you know, sampling on a level that we could never have thought of on our own. So. How has that kind of maybe ebbed and flowed, would you say, like during COVID? Because obviously people aren't going to hotels as much. People are going back to restaurants, at least in New York. So, I mean, do you still feel like that's a big part of the business? Like now that travel maybe is it, coming it's back? It's returning. And I think, um, I mean, business travel is still a little bit stunted, um, but leisure travel is definitely on the upswing and returning to uh, normalcy. So yes, it continues to be an incredible opportunity for us. And, um, you know, we love it when people um, say, oh, I was just this amazing hotel in this amazing place. And they sent us a photo of our our products and, you know, they're so happy to discover the brand there. So it's still an incredibly viable and emotional um, channel for us. Yeah. And and amenities, well, it it is a big part of our business and a huge part of our exposure, it doesn't account for a huge piece of our profitability. So the margins on that are are very small. So while we see revenue coming from it, it doesn't make us a more profitable business because there, it's really the exposure that we're getting from that. Well, it's it's indirect revenue. You know, it's not, uh, you're not going to make, no one's going to retire on on selling hotel amenity products, but what happens is the guests who stay at the hotel then go out and buy the brand, either one of our stores or online or through one of our partners. Well, I just think it's such an interesting, what you said a second ago, Andrew, about sampling, because sampling is obviously something that's been stunted through all of this. I mean, I think we all knew sampling, especially when it was a lipstick or a foundation was disgusting before, and now it's even more. So, I mean, the ability to be able to get things in people's hands and and be excited about it and then maybe steal it from the hotel that you're staying at, you know. Exactly. Is- so, 
so that's, I think you, you, you hit a really important point. Um, if you just go to a million events and you get a swag bag, it becomes gratuitous. You know, how many bags can you get? You filter through the thing, you pick out the things you want, you throw out the things you don't want. But there's really, it's not that exciting. I think when it first started, it was a novelty. But when you're at a hotel and you're on vacation and you discover something new or discover an old friend, and then you're able to take it from the housekeeping uh, cart when nobody's looking, that makes the sampling really emotional and passionate. You're like, it's, it's about discovery as opposed to getting something for free. Tell me a little bit about that discovery process, because right now it's there's been a lot of consolidation in a way in beauty. You know, I think a few years ago we talked about like why you hadn't got into maybe a bigger retailer like Sephora or an Ulta. And now we're seeing, you know, Sephora and Kohl's, Ulta and Target, 13 Loon and JCPenney. There's a lot of like amalgamation. I probably am saying that wrong, um, happening right now. And, you know, Matthew, you come from the high end luxury beauty counter experience. So what are you making out of all this? And has this made you change your mind for bigger retail? So yes and no. Um, we, we've always been open to larger footprints and in, in, in terms of discovery. And certainly what we do as a retailer is about convenience. We've seen convenience and what people perceive as convenience, especially as uh, for replenishment products, um, just change dramatically. Whereas all of a sudden, people are replenishing online, and the pandemic made that um, more desirable. And certainly, it happened much faster than we expected. It just gave people a lot more comfort in terms of where they were shopping and and how easily they could purchase something. So, you know, obviously, um, we're opportunistic in that respect, and we want to we want to be where our customers are. So, you know, we we've leaned into that to some degree. On the same token, though, I think there is um, a piece of exclusivity and um, and discovery about having the brand feel and be special. Um, you know, when we were talking about brick and mortar stores, so worldwide we have thirteen. Um, you know, that that's not a lot if you really think about. They're in five different cities, um, so it's kind of spread out. Um, with with brick and mortar in general, as we look at our retailers and our retail wholesale network. Um, you know, it's pretty small by the beauty industry standards. I mean, really nationally here in the United States, Nordstrom's is our single department store. You know, we start, we work with Bloomingdale's, but you know, there's a handful of those. And, you know, there's some, there's some others. Um, we've, we've entered Sephora in Canada. Um, so, you know, the, there are pieces of this where we're looking at things on national levels, but it's still pretty limited in terms of how you can find us and where you can find us. Yeah, I, I think there's competing forces. Um, the new luxury is uh, expediency. So, um, you know, how quickly can I get it? And um, on the other hand, we're firm believers in exclusivity. exclusivity that if you are everywhere um, and you're ubiquitous, I think you just lose um, a lot of the integrity and special, uh, what makes a brand special. So it's a, fi- it's a fine balance and... I don't know that we have a direct answer for that. Uh, I think we, we learn as we go and brands evolve over time. But in general, um, we sort of, we embrace that exclusivity. We like that, 
you have to discover it or maybe work a little bit harder. I mean, how hard is it? You go online and you get it. So um, it's a question at that point, if you are ordering online, how quickly can you get it? Usually that's what people want, that instantaneous gratification. Um, but on the other hand, there's nothing is going to beat the store experience when you're there with one of our associates who can walk you through the whole um, the whole brand and all the products and find the right products for you. And it just becomes a, a joie de provision, the joy of shopping. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. I wanted to ask you, you know, Matthew, you mentioned a second ago about Sephora Canada and also Nordstrom. Um, and, you know, of course, before this interview, I had to do my due diligence and like Google you everywhere. Um, and I, it was funny because I went to Sephora.com and AltaBeauty.com and you guys, you are one of the searchable terms on Sephora.com, maybe because of Sephora Canada, but you know, you're not, your brand's not there. So clearly people are looking for you there. And so I'm wondering like what these bigger retails kind of offer for you, because I know also sidestepping a bit, um, you guys are available on Amazon. So, you know, Andrew, you talked a little bit about that convenience and luxury being convenient. So it seems like there's, you know, it seems like you, there's obviously demand everywhere for you all, noting that Sephora example, but then it's also that kind of convenient versus exclusivity play that you guys are, you're thinking about. Why Amazon? Like why Sephora Canada? It's, you know, the, well, we, we've been asking ourselves that for <laughs> a long time too. So Sephora Canada um, is a real opportunity as we hadn't really entered the marketplace and so having a singular retailer to ship to on a national level of Sephora's stature is important to us. It provides convenience to the customer. There's a go-to place for the brand, um, you know, with a retailer that's highly respected. So in, in that country where we were entering the market two years ago, it really was sort of the right direction for the brand at the time. As with Amazon, um, this was something that uh, I think we we sort of debated over a long period of time, and the pandemic really brought home the debate. But it but we had entered Amazon pre pandemic, and it was really because of our amenity program. So what was happening is is that if you were staying in a hotel and you liked our shampoo, then you just went online and you wanted to buy it. Now if wherever you lived, you couldn't ship it there or you could only ship it there and it would get there in a week, you were disappointed. But if you could just go on Amazon and get it the next day or the same day, you felt immediate gratification. Our website, um, given our size, couldn't offer that. And so as we started to look to compete with the Sephora's of the world or Nordstrom's or, you know, because we have our own brick and mortar, we have our own website, um, how do you fulfill those sort of immediate needs from consumers? And Amazon really picks up the slack. And on top of that, if, I don't know if you know anything about sort of um, gray market Amazon, but you're on Amazon even if you're not on Amazon. Yeah, I was, I was going to bring yeah. that up. You, you, you're whether you like it or not, you're on Amazon, and so we we definitely struggled with uh, with the decision whether we do it um, directly or not, and we came to the conclusion that the amount of effort that we would have to put into making sure we were keeping the gray market at bay would be a complete distraction. So we embraced it and um, and I think we made, I know we made the right decision. They've been a terrific partner and we've seen our digital commerce or e-commerce grow exponentially. So it's been great. And the brand is there as we want it to yeah, be. Yeah, we, we control uh, the know, experience. Within our parameters. Yeah, we control the experience. Tell me about that because obviously as 
I want to say indie brand, but you're not because you've been around for 18 years, you know, controlling Amazon is a full-time job. Like, are you guys doing that yourselves? Are you doing it with a partner? We have a person dedicated to it now, and we didn't originally. So there's, uh, uh, maybe Andrew knows, but there's like several ways you can enter Amazon. So you can do it direct. You can do it through a distributor or a partner of some sort. And then there's sort of this hybrid situation in between. And it's different, um, it's different tiers of how much Amazon allows you to do. So if you're direct with them, which we are, um, it requires yeah, you to- so, Yeah, so the, the, I think the, um, the way to define it is that if you go directly with Amazon Beauty, um, Amazon then does all the policing to make sure there's no gray market and they shut everything off. If you're going to Amazon as, um, I guess, as a third party sort of organization, then it's a, the, the marketplace is open to, to everyone. And their goal was to get you on Amazon Beauty, which is their luxury beauty site. And the perks of going on there is that they did the gatekeeping for you. So that was in, sort of an easy decision for us because we wanted to eliminate all the gray market. But when you're direct, you also then have control over your branding, advertising. They just allow you a lot more. When you're part of their their partnership program directly, they allow you a lot more um, freedom to be able to create a brand experience. If you're a frequent flyer, you get better, <laughs> you get a better seat. And you've been happy with it because, you know, it's so funny. I always, I'm, I'm always asking this question. I think that we all shop on Amazon, whether you're shopping at Bergdorf or you're shopping at Costco, you still have to go on Amazon eventually. I, I bought three things in, during this interview. <laughs> so you're not paying attention, Andrew. No, I'm just kidding. So I'm just wondering, you know, when you think about like that convenience and convenience being the new luxury, you know, how do you kind of, is, is the draw then your stores, your most utmost experience of that in real time versus the Amazon is the convenient piece of that? Amazon is replenishment. So we don't really see, we're not really cultivating. We are, we're cultivating new customers, of course. But really what we see is a replenishment customer coming through Amazon. Somebody who wants it now immediately, doesn't want to wait, or is already shopping on Amazon and they're just adding this to their cart. When somebody's coming to us directly, they want a brand experience. They want to sit there and discover and learn and, um, and, and have a, hopefully a, a special experience. They're, they're both equally important, but in different ways. Uh, so they're very complementary. What you get on the Malin and Getz website is um, very, very different than your Amazon experience. As Matthew said, it's really about replenishment. You've got two seconds, you hit the button, and you know before you know it, your product arrives. So they're, they're totally complementary to one another. But it, it, and, it, it, um, it was difficult. I mean, I remember Andrew saying originally when we were talking about this like several years ago, he was like, I can't really imagine someone buying toilet paper and grapefruit facial cleanser, you know, in the same click. Like that doesn't feel good to me, you know, but but essentially that's what happens. Absolutely. Would you say that, you know, stores are going to be a bigger part of the puzzle for you going forward? You know, after we get this Williamsburg store off the ground and, and you know, people are able to kind of feel that neighborhood vibe there. Are you looking at other locations? Uh, yes, I mean, so the way I, this is a, a sort of a, a crude way of describing it, but in order to win the war, you need the Army, the Air Force, Marines, and the Navy. And each one of those um, military aspects serve a purpose. So our brick and mortar stores are extremely important. Our luxury par- partners are extremely important. 
e-commerce and Amazon are all important aspects of how to be a successful brand because nobody shops in a monolithic way. We're shopping at different times in different ways and being able to support that customer through those different channels is really critical. And and, and to that, we are um, actively looking at um, Abbott Kenny in um, Los Angeles, in Venice specifically. Um, we have a store that we are um, in the process of developing in Nomad here in Manhattan. Um, so th- that's in, in the works. Um, there is um, a possibility for Canary Wharf in London, um, which is a... a, a a destination that we've been eyeing for some time now um, to round out our our, our freestanding store network. There, um, we've also just added a shop and shop with um, New York Nordstroms and with Lane Crawford in Ho- in Hong Kong, um, where we also have a freestanding store. Um, so there's definitely from a, a brick and mortar freestanding store perspective as well as a wholesale model perspective. We're looking at our own sort of shop and shop or storefront experiences um, in various places. And we're continuing to, to pursue that. There's a lot of momentum with, with brick and mortar and enthusiasm. What was the Kith experience about? Because obviously that's a whole different other customer that everyone is obsessed with right now. Um, and sure. Even Larry David. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So tell me, what was that experience like? And would you want to do it again? I mean, if they. Yeah, know. no, they, they've been a terrific partner. Um, you know, the amount of eyes on Kith is sort of a phenomenon. And Ronnie's super smart and, you know, really talented, great marketer. So for us to um, combine forces has been a real, real pleasure. And I think it's been mutually beneficial for each of us. I mean, we enjoy them, they enjoy us, and we've developed more products for them. So it continues to grow and expand. And as you say, it's a, it's a different customer um, than our traditional Chelsea customer. And stay tuned. There, there may be something in the works. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. I was like, so when's the next drop? <laughs> so, so there, you know, there, there's a conversation going on where we're, we're, we're having a, a very um, happy, active conversation. And besides that, what else is going on on the product innovation side? What can we expect for holiday and into 2022? So we've had a couple of really successful limited edition products that are that we're looking to bring back. One happens to be a fragrance um, called Strawberry, um, which we had launched um, this past year, and it had been hugely successful for us. It's a very light, fresh, summery scent, which will take us into next year. Um, we also have a, a candle, which was inspired by our gardening um, in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, called Tomato. Um, that's on its way back. Um, it had been hugely popular for us as well. We also have a, um, a new uh, facial cleanser in the works. So um, one of the things that we've tried to do is really stay very focused to keeping the regimen simple. Um, but we, as the brand has expanded, especially um, in Asia specifically, there's been a real request for us to take our, our, our cleansing to the next level. So um, we're looking at a cream cleanser for the first time for the brand, which is pretty exciting. I think we're all pretty psyched about that. Um, what else am I? Uh, we have a, a serum we're working on, a very souped up serum, which will round out to our third serum um, that's in the works. That should probably be sometime next year. 
So it really seems like you're not only, you know, expanding the assortment for bestsellers and, and beloved items, but it's also really about this like intellectual, smarter skincare consumer, which obviously is in Asia. Yes. Well, as the... As I said, as our exposure continues to grow, um, requests for product continues to grow. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a rabbit hole where you could just continue to make product after product after product because everyone has own, their own specific need or they read about an ingredient and they just want something. Um, what we've tried to do is really keep our assortment tight and to fill voids in the assortment that makes sense for who we are and what we do, which is really to keep the, the most simple, simple, regimen available to somebody. So we definitely need problem solution oriented items to fill voids with a foundation of a great cleanser and a great moisturizer for face, body, or hair sort of in the the center of it all. You know, at the top of this conversation, I think this is a good closer. You know, you mentioned that there were so many brands that were kind of cool and we're filling this void, but we're also getting acquired, you know, whether it was the blisses of the world, um, which, you know, Marcia has done an incredible job and continues to make brands. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, you guys are one of the few indie brands that have been around for a long time and have, you know, the wherewithal to show, you know, many investors or many conglomerates what you're doing. What are you thinking about that? Because there's been a lot of purchasing and investing in SPACs and do you want to keep it between the two of you? Or are you thinking about growing? What are, what's your thoughts there? So um, a, a few years ago, we took a minority investment from a company called Manzanita. Um, it's not a secret. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's funded by Bill Fisher and his family, the Fisher family out of San Francisco. Um, and it's been a very positive experience. It's allowed us to grow a little bit faster, um, but still at our own pace. Um, the, his, his beauty business is very respectful of sort of that pace and the founders um, being involved. So we've been able to sort of do our thing and, you know, just chug along where we are with, um, uh, you know, a, a third partner in place, which, is, which has actually been quite nice. He's, he's in the background. He's not actively involved on a day-to-day basis. Um, but he, you know, he, he's provided some um, opportunity and resources to us that have just allowed us to grow a little bit faster. So we're just sort of doing our thing, looking towards the future and continuing to be who we are um, at the pace that we're going. Yeah. And, and I think it allows us to, uh, Matthew and I, to focus on the things that we do really, really well, like product development and architecture and design and not have to worry about the um, more cumbersome things like accounting meetings and um, and China sort of drier <laughs> stuff. Going into China, for instance. <laughs> right. So you're not going to China right now. But, you know, I do have to ask, you know, Matthew and Andrew, actually, on that point, you know, it seems like there are so people are getting acquired faster. People are getting investment so much faster, which could be a good or a bad thing. I mean, is that are you open are you open? There's a lot of investors on this podcast who listen in. I, I think we're pretty happy with the investment that we have today um, in that direction. It's 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 all going very smoothly for us. Um, we enter the partnership with somebody after 11, 12 years of doing it on our own and self-funded at that point. So it and we were talking to them for five or six years before we actually ended up doing anything. So it's you know it's it's definitely a marriage and, and it's, it's definitely a long courtship before the marriage. Um, 
if you're going to enter those kinds of partnerships, we we didn't enter, we didn't develop our business with the intent to to flip it and to sell it immediately. That wasn't the goal. The goal was really to grow old and be sitting at our villa in Tuscany, someplace, calling in for the number, saying, "Well, how'd the day go?" You know, and that kind of thing. And and honestly, like, there's still opportunity for that to happen. Thank you both so much for being here. It was so great having you. Thank you. We really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.